You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Here's uh, the title of our sermon. Some of you are going, oh, his spell check didn't work out very well. That's a Greek word. Uh, Aneo, Ananeo way, the Ananeo way. That means new, the new way. And we're going to get there. That's in my uh, last passage. But open uh, your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 35, and that's really going to be our text for today. Um, It's great to have Kenny back from um, the world travels that he's been on, sort of a world tour. Kenny, we've missed you. It's so exciting to have you back. We had a great talk this week, and uh, he lands trying to shake off a little jet lag and uh, pray for him. He's jumping Um, right into teen camp this week. So that takes quite a man uh, to land and jump right into teen camp. That'll take a little something out of you. So it's great to have you back, Kenny. Thank you for heading out um, with our teens and doing such a great job taking care of them. And also a special note today, uh, we don't do this for everybody, but he is our elder. It is Mark Shump's birthday. He'll probably hate that I'm saying this. But uh, yeah, everybody give Mark a hug on the way out. He needs a birthday hug. Mark needs a birthday hug. Everybody needs a birthday hug, but I want Mark to have a birthday hug. So what we're going to do today is talk a little bit about protest. We met with the teens on Wednesday night. We had a great little discussion. What should the Christian protest? Should the Christian protest? Is it a good idea for Christians to protest? Did Jesus protest or... How did Jesus protest? What should our response be to injustice? We have to be thinking about this, I think, as Christians. Amen. But let's take a step back, you know, and look at our country and think about our country. We are a people of protest. Our country is birthed in protest. Our, some of our more famous protests, uh, the Revolutionary War. Everybody remembers the Boston Tea Party, not that you were there, but this sort of births a nation, if you will. So we're a nation birthed in a protest, the Boston Tea Party. Um, Early 1900s, late 1800s, women's rights, the suffrage movement, right? This was a very famous protest and uh, super significant. Hardly anybody talks about these things today, but of course at that time, that was a really big deal. Um, Again, early 1900s, the labor protest in school. I remember reading... uh, Upton Sinclair, The Jungle. So you get this whole thing on um, uh, sort of workers' rights, taking advantage of of immigrant workers. We're not paying them, and we're overworking them, and some of them are dying, and there are these terrible meat-packing plants and and all over the place. That was a famous protest. That changed a lot of our laws. It changed a lot of our our culture. Uh, The 60s sort of ushers in, of course, the civil rights movement. I think many of us feel a little, little... more affinity to the civil rights movement of the 60s. And let's remember, a lot of this largely is led by Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who was a reverend. So as a Christian, he decided there was a time for him to make this sort of stand. But of course, there's voting rights and there's anti-war movements. So the 60s really become um, a bit of a decade of protest, if you will. So with that in mind, I want to talk about a couple of things this morning out of Isaiah. We're going to talk about protest versus peace. I'm going to try and make a little bit of a comparison. That'll be my first point. 
Second, um, we're going to talk about despair and desire. Because people, I think, are always on this, uh, in this mix of despair and desire. The things that we want, um, it hurts when we don't get them. Um, it makes us despair. When we lose, we despair. Uh, there's so much that makes us despair, but faith leads us back to desire, I believe. And this has to do with disappointment. And then lastly, we're going to talk a little bit about being empty or having energy. Being empty or having energy. And this is a great third point because it's the point right before we go to lunch. So that's where we're going, and we'll get some good energy after that. Amen? What do I want from you today? I want something from you today. I want you to listen. Amen? Hopefully I get some amens today. Let's amen it up a little bit today. I think that'd be good for us. I think that'd be good for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, some of, maybe you'll get some new stuff today. Maybe you won't get a lot of new stuff today. But I'm hoping from you a real commitment to change. I want you to lean in to what we're all trying to do together. No one person is going to make the difference. All of us leaning in together, I think, will make an incredible difference. Um, remember what we're not. We're not the police. We're not in law enforcement. And we're not in the world a protest movement. We're, we're not on a side. We're on God's side. And let's remember again who we are as a church. I think sometimes even as a church, we have gotten off track or off the road. And let's remember again what we're not. We're not working on some kind of merit system. And we've gotten caught up a lot in this. I know I have quite a bit where I get a lot of security from getting a lot of disciple points. You know what I mean? If I do a lot of Christian stuff, I go to all the meetings, I go to all the prayers, I give my contribution, I'm evangelistic, I've checked all the boxes, that sort of comforts me. I feel like I'm winning. I feel like I'm getting some disciple points. Now, I love the Olympics. The Olympics are coming up. This will be really fun. But you and I are not engaged in any sort of race for gold or silver or bronze when we're in church. Amen? We're all trying to finish together. I used to be a basketball player, have morphed into a bit of a runner, but I'm not really naturally a runner. So I like this because we just want you to finish. You get a participation award. And that's what I always say. Thank you. That's all I need. That's what I'm looking for. That's a little bit like heaven. I'm not going to win this thing. I just want to get there and get a participation award. Feels a little bit like the YMCA when we're doing basketball. Just get a participation award. We want everybody learning the game and working out and having a good time. Although the kids all do know who won the game and who didn't win the game. And how, who's, who had however many points and or rebounds. And so to do that, I think we again need, again, just sort of check your heart right now. I need a willing heart. God needs a willing heart. God can do anything with a willing heart and a humble mind. Amen. And with that, let's talk a little bit about 33,000. Last year, we had 33,000 gun deaths. How many is that a day? Roughly 10-ish, right? Roughly 100-ish, sorry. There you go. That's a lot of people dying every day. And what grabs the media spotlights, obviously, is when it's something really dramatic, either a mass shooting or we had a protest and somebody was shot. This, this freaks everybody out. It's really a big deal. But when you look at some of the stats, 
33,000 died from, um, last year from, from gun deaths. 85% of them are men. Uh, about 75% of those gun deaths are by suicide. And this doesn't get the same kind of attention that our protest movements do. But just remember that. That's just a huge chunk of people that are dying every day by a self-inflicted wound. About 4,000 women a year die from gun violence from domestic violence. That's a big number. Don't let that just be a number. That's 4,000 women. We lost 4,000 women last year in domestic violence from gun violence. About seven vets a day last year and the year before, 2014 and 15, we don't know what it will be this year, obviously, uh, kill themselves every day. So today about seven vets will kill themselves. Um, I'm going to do this another time, the Stanford Prison Experiment. But what does this all sort of add up to? I'm trying to open up and sort of set a framework here of um, all lives matter. All lives matter. What's going on? What's going on? Boy, our whole thing is broken, okay? We're in a broken world. And we live in the best country you can live in in this world. And it's really messed up out there. People are hurting. People are dying. People are being wounded. People are scared. And here we are right in the middle of politics. Um, All of our students will do this. I don't know that we all got this. Um... Postmodern theory is really popular right now. All the students are going to do a little postmodern theory, right? And one of the most important themes or frameworks in postmodern theory is fear and power, the interplay between fear and power. And whether we're watching politics or some of the stuff that's happening out in the streets, a lot of it is about fear and a lot of it is about power. And we've got to be careful because as Christians or people who are trying to develop faith, we're trying to be about faith. Not about fear and not about power. Fear and power aren't appropriate responses to the world's problems. Faith is our only real response to our world's problems, to our problems in our homes and to some of our problems here in church. Let me say a quick thing about that because I brought it up a little bit earlier. We've had some church problems, amen? Well, I don't know that we amen that, but thank you. I got a couple amens on that. That was nice. Look, it's not that hard, okay? It's not that hard. Fighting ISIS is really hard. Figuring out global warming is going to be really hard. I don't know. Saving the polar bears. I don't know how to do that. That just sounds really hard. I don't know how to do that. The Christians getting along with each other shouldn't be that hard. So let's be a little more humble. Let's have a little better heart and faith. There are some real issues. I don't want to stick my head. No ostrich, no turtling. Let's deal with each other. But... But there's hard stuff out there. Dealing with each other shouldn't be that hard. And if dealing with each other is the hardest thing going on in our lives, let's just go home now. This is the hardest stuff in our lives? Come on. But I've heard from some Christians, this feels like the hardest stuff that's going on in my life. That's a little absurd. Going to church should never be the hardest thing going on in our lives. Because we're just going to church and trying to love each other. 
and be in the Word. And we're all a part of something that is incredible, I believe. So new perspective, amen? New perspective. So we get this patterns of thinking, bit of a stuck, bit of a brain chain. We get a little bit of a brain chain. So here's my passage, Isaiah 35. Let's read this with me. It says, uh, verse 8, I'm going to read the whole thing, 8, 9, and 10. A highway will be there. Oh, boy, we need that. A highway will be there. And it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go on it. No lion will be there. Nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. But they will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. And they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Well, that's great. So we're in the middle of fear and power. We're in the middle of politics. We're in the middle of protest. It gets foggy out there. What's the answer? How do we solve some of these problems? There is a way. There's a highway. There is a real highway for anybody and everyone. God's got a way. God's got a road. The God road works today. The God road has always worked. The God road is the only road that's ever going to work. Amen? And that's what we've got to find and make sure we're on today. A highway will be, a highway will be there. That's my first point. Protest versus peace. This is difficult. This is difficult for us because Jesus, you know, we think about him. We go, well... You know, he's not a hippie. He's not out there just hogging everybody. That's not his goal. Jesus isn't out there just trying to make everybody feel better. He's not trying to do that. Now, when it comes to the government, he doesn't seem real reactive to the government. There'd been a lot of revolts. There'd been a lot of protesting. But when it comes to paying taxes, when it comes to following the laws, he sort of shrugs his shoulders and it's kind of a big, okay, yeah, whatever. That's not really that important. You don't want taxes? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Good. Pay taxes. Um, What does he do, though, in building this team? Well, that's really remarkable. You know, he puts Matthew, the tax collector, on his team. And Matthew, the tax collector, would have been one of the most hated people in um, Israel at this time. He's a Jewish man that's making money, that's collecting taxes from the Jews, they're being exploited, and they're giving them back to the Romans, the exploiter. I mean, what a total sellout. You can't be more of a sellout than Matthew the tax collector. And Jesus sees something in this guy, and he wants him on the team. Now, he also put Simon the Zealot on the team. And Simon the Zealot is a protester. The zealots were committed to overthrowing the government. That was their number one agenda. We completely reject the authority of the Romans in our country, and we'll do everything, we'll do everything and anything, and just sort of bide our time until we can overthrow the government. We hate the government. They are all bad. We'll kill them all. So you got Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter on the same team. That's what Jesus did. He didn't even take a side on that. He just said, I'll just take one from both sides and make something great here in the middle. That's what faith does for us. That's what Jesus is showing us. But something gets us off. That's our road. But what gets us off our road? So many things get us off our road. I'll just talk about one here to get us started. And that's just just anger. 
Now, anger, I want you to think about anger as, right, there's a whole, um, there's a whole array of emotions. Try and guess. How many emotions do you think there are? Just, you know, we're not going to shout this out, but I don't know. How many emotions do I experience, right? I don't know. I would have said when I first started going to school, personally, four. That's like when I'm really feeling touchy-feely. Usually it's one or two. Usually it's anger or boredom. Is that an emotion? Or hunger. Is that an emotion? I don't know. I sure do feel it, though. <laughs> right? So a little bit like the color prism. There are some primary emotions. We probably think six or seven. Uh, from that, emotion experts think there's over uh, 4,000 different emotions that you can experience. 4,000 different emotions. Yeah, right. There's some guys that are going, hey, four, that was a lot. You're pretty emotional. And I got a couple girls up here that said 4,000. Oh, yeah, I totally relate to that. That's all? That's all? That seems low. So this is a whole curious thing. But anger we think of as a protest emotion. So I get angry. I get angry. What's the feedback I'm getting? Something I, I've, I'm visualizing. I'm seeing something that is really making me upset. I'm seeing an injustice. Something is not right. And anger, I get that emotion. I want to correct something. I want to talk about it. I want to get something done. I want to fight somebody. I want to argue with somebody. I want to work on something. Um, we got to get something done. So it's a great, it's actually an energizer. It's negative, but it's actually an energizer. Uh, one of the first couples I ever worked with, it was really interesting. They train you, of course, to be really neutral. Can't take sides. You got to be neutral. You got to try and pull everybody in, build this middle place in the middle, right? And after watching them three or four times, I go, um, well, I don't know if this is, I'm supposed to say this, but you're obviously just looking to pick a fight every day with him. I'm speaking to the wife. And what happened? She got really defensive. No, I'm not. You're not helping. You're supposed to be telling me that I'm right and fixing him. I go, well, we're working on him, but the process is within about 20 minutes of being home, you're picking a fight with him. Why are you picking a fight with him? And, you know, we went around the horn on this and nothing really happened. Then the next week, she goes, you know, I started thinking about it. And I would be terrified if we weren't fighting. I said, why? Well, if we didn't fight, I would just sit on the couch and eat ice cream and be happy. Okay, can you tell me a little more? Well, yeah, don't you see it? Mm -mm. Then nothing would happen around the house. So I got to get angry. And then when I'm angry, I have energy, and I go do the dishes, and I do laundry, and then I change the kids, I clean up the kids' room, and then I go out in the garage, and I'm, of course I'm cursing and yelling the whole time, but a lot of stuff is getting done. And then I realize about 10, 11 at night, I got everything done, and I'm pretty happy. But why is my marriage so bad? I can't figure that out. Yeah, there you go. Okay, okay, so we found something. So there we go. That's a great example. Anger is protest, but it does give us energy, and a lot of us feed off that energy. I love anger. I'm comfortable with anger. I know what to do with it. It means I'm going to fight, or I'm going to run, or I'm going to get loud, something. Tanya doesn't like anger. 
When we first got married, she's like, you know, you got to... It was a long story. <laughs> but basically, she said after our first year or two of being married, I can't handle your anger. It's just too much. It's like you're radioactive. I go, I'm not radioactive. I think I'm right. I was young. But anger, I know what to do with that. I remember I told her one day that I was really angry about something. She goes, you're angry? What are you angry about? I go, this happened, that happened, something. I don't even know. She goes, that's not anger. That's, um, that's like fear or insecurity. I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to have some Chinese food here in a minute. Um, I don't know about any fear or insecurity. I might be afraid of having delicious Chinese food, but um, I'm not really afraid of that. I know what to do there. But I feel angry. Uh, And this is what a lot of us do. We take primary emotions and we channel them into a different emotion like anger, and then we can do something. That's anger. That's a sword and a shield. That's a sword and a shield. But hurt, sorrow, grief, pain, that's vulnerable. You've got no place to go there. You're just hiding. So uh, we get it. But protest is about anger. So what do we do with anger? Um, there, is some good, there is some good passages. There's a million passages on this. But let's think about this. Let's try and look at both sides. Open your mouth and judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy, Proverbs 31.9. I think this is an important passage when we're talking about protest and justice. There is injustice in the world. Amen? I don't think the right response is just to stick our head in the sand and pretend like it's not there. That's not an appropriate response. And, and Solomon, the writer here, Proverbs 31, says, no, 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 there's, there's injustice, the, the rights of the poor and the needy. We need to say something about the poor and the needy. We should speak up. We should have a voice for injustice. There should be a place where we do this, not just stick our head in the sand. But I want you to think about how you do this, because... You know, I don't know if this gets you in trouble at work. We all have a certain kind of relationship and or history with anger. Usually it gets us in trouble, though, at work. Usually it gets us in trouble at home. Husbands and wives, you need to think about each other right now. How does anger affect your relationship? What role does anger have in your home? Right? We can think back. Wow, I can, I can think of a million things growing up at home, but one of the most influential things is how anger was dealt with in our home. I was terrified of it. Anger shaped so much of our home life. Anybody relate to that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And here we are as Christians. We're trying to figure out how to build different kinds of homes. And a lot of us, we still have too much anger in our homes. It hijacks our relationships. It hijacks our lives. It makes us kind of radioactive in our relationships. And so, husbands, wives, we've got to figure out how, not to de- how to deal with anger and then deal with each other. And, of course, parents, we get a lot of anger with kids and kids, right? I might get an amen on this. Kids, we get some anger towards mom and dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what? That's what? Normal. Yeah, there you go. There you go. But there's a way to protest. Kicking your dad in the knee and calling your mom names and burning the house down or whatever is not an appropriate way to protest. Learning how to talk to them respectfully and voicing some of your concerns, there's a way to protest. There's a way to say, look, no more macaroni and cheese, okay? I'm tired of it. <laughs> look at this passage in Luke chapter 9. This is a beauty. Luke chapter 9. You can keep your finger in Luke 35. I'm going back there. Luke chapter 9. 
Verse 51. As they approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Wow, what a great, what a cool thought. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples, uh, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? (laughs) But Jesus rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Uh, That's like a commercial. I sure would like to see the whole story. But this is great. This is a protest moment. Um, They had kind of a good response. They're feeling defensive for Jesus. These guys are insulting Jesus. And the guys are mad. Hey, you don't insult Jesus. That's Jesus. You know who you're insulting? Of course, it's a little counterproductive. Jesus is here to save souls. Hey, Jesus, how about we just hit the nuclear button on these guys right now? Just to shortcut the whole thing. Because we're busy. We've got to get to Jerusalem. This is absurd. And Jesus doesn't really say much. It's one of those beautiful moments where he probably rolls his eyes a little bit. Boy, they're really not getting it. No, that's not what we're about. That's not what our highway, that's not the way that we're building. If we do that, everybody's going to do that. There's nothing new in that. The zealots have been doing that for a long time, and it hasn't really gotten us anywhere. We're trying to do a new way. That's not what we're about. We're not burning down people that don't like us or don't agree with us. Well, I'm glad he clarified that. But that should help us a little bit, again, understand, hey, it's kind of normal. There was an injustice. The guys got angry. But Jesus is not reactive. He doesn't respond to this and get hijacked into, yeah, let's take those guys down, right? No, he doesn't do that. That's important for us to remember. Um, so let's do this. We've got to deal with our anger so that we can do what? I like how he says that in Isaiah 35, so you can get up on that road. And maybe we do it all together, right? Uh, What are we going to do? We're going to get up on that road. Let's all get up on that road together. That's what he's trying to do. What does anger do? That's an off-ramp. That's an off-ramp. And we've got to deal with our anger because we're trying to get on the on-ramps so we can be there. Uh, Point two, what else does he say in this Isaiah 35? I'm heading back to Isaiah 35. In describing it, the first thing that he does to describe it is simply say this is a way of holiness it's a way of holiness and we'll talk a little bit here about despair and desire we all know this proverb simply says hopes deferred does what it makes the heart sick makes the heart sick there's just a truth in that you know when your football team loses when ucla loses you know how i feel you know i feel like mourning like a death in the family George told a great story. It really took me back to our early days at UCLA. But you know what I also remember? At his wedding, which was at the UCLA-Miami game, when we were fighting, when we were number one in the country, and we were up two touchdowns in the fourth quarter, UCLA gave up three touchdowns in the fourth quarter uh, during the reception. Why do I know that? Because I was in the reception. I was in the car listening to the game, George. Because that's what a good Bruin does. Thank you. You can just say thank you. And I came in and told everybody, like, way to go, George. It's probably George's fault. It's not a good omen for this marriage. When you like somebody and they don't like you back singles, how does that feel? Yeah, hope deferred. 
Hope deferred. Hope deferred. Campus people, same thing. They like somebody, somebody doesn't like them back. What happens? Woo-hoo! Hope deferred. Hope deferred. That's exactly right. You feel like steak, but somebody in your family went vegan? Mmm. There's a sermon right there. There is a sermon. Lots of deferred hope. Lots of deferred hope in that. I am feeling that. That's another story. But we get disappointed. We get disappointed. We get sad. We get disappointed. And a lot of Christians, frankly, um, we're getting a little older, and we're getting a little older, we're getting a little sulkier. This is not, remember that movie, Grumpy Old Men? That's not this road. The Christian road is not Grumpy Old Men Road. That's a funny movie, but it's not what we want. It's not the movie that describes our Christian experience. And we got some Christians that are sulky and they're grumpy. Why do we have so many sulky and grumpy Christians? Where's the light? Now, we're in the middle of our stories. I'm trying to make light a little bit of our pain. God uses our pain and is fully aware of all of our pain, and he's using it to transform us. Uh, Faith um, is not about overcoming obstacles. I need faith to overcome obstacles. I need faith so I can go through my obstacles, not overcome them necessarily. Faith isn't about overcoming. It's about going through them. And God knows this. He knows we're right in the middle of it. But disappointment, sadness, sulky, what is it? I'm on the road, off-ramp. Off-ramp, right? Off-ramp. What happened? Why am I sitting here on the side of the road? One of the brothers, he didn't mean to do this. He, How was your week, bro? He says, well, it, was pretty, it wasn't a good week. What happened? I woke up uh, uh, one of the mornings, and my car was on four-cylinder blocks with no tires. It's like, wow, it's been a long time since I saw that. We used to do that a lot around here. I never did that. But we used to hear those stories a lot. Yeah, that takes you, that's an off-ramp. You're not even on off-ramp, you can't even get in the car. That's some of our Christian lives right now, though. Some of our Christian lives right now are cars on block. How's you doing spiritually, bro? Cars on block. How's, how's marriage? How's home? How's faith? How's body? Car on block. Car on block. <laughs> okay. Christian, hey, we got to get you some new wheels. Gonna get you some wheels. But we don't get wheels by being sulky and grumpy. Right? I went to Pep Boys to get wheels once. I didn't go in there and, and, and sulk my way in there into some tires. I actually had to fight for them. Hey, I got a coupon here for some tires. That's no good. Don't tell me the coupon's not good. And you got to fight for some tires. Okay, I got to get up on the road. So we got to watch out these. Our family, we travel well. Not all families travel well. I should ask for hands, but I'm not. We're a family just... Under our lucky stars, we travel really well. So we love to get in the car and travel and go. It's always a great experience. But um, some families, right, this usually is what takes us straight to the cross, is trying to, is trying to. A comedian said this. I don't even know what he says. Probably Jim Gaffigan. There's no such thing as fun for the whole family. Fun for the whole family? What? No, that doesn't exist. Um, but we travel well. But the car is funny because it always gets real cluttered. And there's always a bunch of trash. All of a sudden, Tanya's done such a great job. She doesn't have OCD, but she makes everything so perfect, and everything fits in its place, and it's just right. It amazes me. And then we all get in there, and we hear, I hear, I hear comments. You know, it's like, gosh, it's like living with a pack of wolves. And she's not really talking with me. She's kind of talking about me. I think she's talking about me. 
And usually that's when I just smile at her. Aren't wolves cute? I think wolves are cute. They're pack animals. They're loving. They love unconditionally. And they're loyal. Thank you. Thank you for the compliment. But we always have to stop to take out the trash. Every time we stop, you know, it's, we start taking out all the trash and reorganizing stuff and you put everything back together. And then there is that moment of, oh, wow, yeah, that's a lot better. That's a lot better. Now we can get back up on the road. Now we can get back up on the road. And this happens to the Christian. And what I want to just take a minute, this is, this is what happens to a lot of Christians. They're, they're disappointed and we get into a lot of sin. And the car's full of a lot of trash. We've got a lot of trash in our minds. We've got some trash in our lives. And we're supposed to be on this way, but no one's enjoying it. It's messy. It doesn't smell good in the car. For whatever reason. It's not comfortable. My back hurts. Something, there's, just, there's just too much stuff in here. I don't know. It's not good. We need a stop. We need a stop. We need to clean up the car. And you know, you pull over, you clean up the car, and this looks something like calling the brothers, calling the sisters, getting things straight, having a good prayer, repentance, metanoia, change of mind. We like that. Take out the trash, leave the trash in the trash can. Mm, amen. Then we get back up on that road. Then we get back up on that road. Um, real fast, I won't read it for time's sake, but remember this for a protest. It's another great protest story or passage. It's Exodus 1. What's happening? They are killing the babies. That's terrible injustice. Hard to think of a more unjust time when the, when the Egyptians are killing the Jewish babies. And it should be a time of protest. But read it for time's sake, Exodus 1. The midwives who were faithful to God, and the writer, they're faithful to God, and they continued... They didn't give in to their anger or their fear, but they continued to serve God by protecting the babies. They didn't give up. They didn't sulk away. They didn't take up sword and shield either. What did they do? They continued to do the right thing and protect the babies. It's a great chapter in our collective history, I believe, and says a lot. In the face of terrible injustice... These women were really faithful and stayed very focused and stayed on the road so we can get these babies, more babies on this road, uh, because this is a really terrible time. They lead us forward down this road. Uh, We want to honor them on this road. And when we think about them, let's get up on that road. That's the road for us all. Third, let's remember this too. What does he say at the end of 35 there? This is great. What happens when you're on the road? And, it's a, and there's holiness on the road, and there's purpose on the road. We know where we're going. Sorrow and sighing flee away. Sorrow and sighing flee away. Now, a lot of Christians are unhappy. And I understand that. That happens to everybody. Because you become a Christian doesn't mean that you go through trials and experience some real unhappiness. Um, um, but, but being in a constant state of sorrow and or grief is not supposed to be a normal Christian experience. When we have mountaintop experiences, when we have faith breakthroughs, when we repent. Remember that passage? Repent, repent so that times of refreshing might come. We experience these times of sorrow and, and grief fleeing us. Now, I think you have to honor these wounds because it's going to happen to everybody. Ecclesiastes says that. We're always going to experience some laughter and what? Some crying. And we're always going to experience some victories and, we're always going to be, and there's always going to be times that, that we're mourning. 
We're always going through this. And God shapes us through this. And so you've got to honor this. And there's a way to mourn. You don't pretend like you're not hurt. That's not the message today. You don't pretend like you're not hurt. Wounds, grief. Grief needs to be grieved. Hurt needs to be mourned. And we go through trying to put our lives back together and put our thoughts back together and put our emotions back together and put our, our spiritual life back together. And this takes a little bit of time. We need great people involved with us uh, to move forward. But, but that's where the Christian goes. That's that road. That's not a fun road. That's not a fun road when you experience um, the death of somebody very close to you. That's not a fun road when you're fired wrongfully. That's not a fun road when you're treated unjustly. That's no, there's no fun in that. That's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. But God gives us tools to work through our pain. God gives us tools to work through grief so that we can get back on the road and get back into faith and going forward again. That's what we're trying to do. And, you know, you got to remember that. Who wants more faith? Who wants more faith? Whatever you have right now. How many faith chips do you have? Let's say you have five faith chips. Who wants ten faith chips? I do. I want more faith chips. I need more faith chips. But the only way you're going to get that, that's why we get that in James 1, is to go through various, various trials and tribulations, is to go through pain. You're not going to get more faith without going through more pain. And so we go through more hardship. We go through more difficulties. This is the only way that we increase our faith. And then we overcome a thing. Wow, I can't believe I climbed that mountain. That was unbelievable. Faith. Whoop! But if I just stay sort of huddled at home or I stay huddled in the same place in my life, we're never going to have those breakthroughs. We're never going to have those experiences. Are you going to be hurt? You're going to get hurt a lot in this life. You're going to get hurt a lot. Grieve, honor it, sorrow, work through it. We get back to faith. We get back to truth. And then we get to go forward. Uh, read this passage with me in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse um, 23. What a great little passage we got here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Sorry. What does he say here? 5, verse 23. May God himself, the God of grace, uh, the God of peace. Let me start again. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. What a great little thought for us to think about here. What's he, what's he, what's he saying? Did I lose a battery? Hold on a second. Yep, hold on. Beep. There we go, there we go. The word he uses for um, breath is pneuma. And this literally, you know, the word is about life force and, and, and what gives us life and being able to breathe, pneuma. It's a great word. I have a lot to say about it, but breath, pneuma. He wants our pneuma to be what? He wants our pneuma to be great. We all experience, everybody's had anxious moments, haven't they? We've all had experienced some anxiety. The word anxiety from the Latin literally means to be without breath. So you think of somebody kind of having a panic attack, or you think of somebody that's anxious and it's hard for them to breathe. Anxiety, literally, to be without breath. To be without breath. And, and Paul here is saying to the Thessalonians as he's leaving, you know, I want your pneuma, I want your breath to be great, to be right. And what else does he want? He uses the word here, psyche. Psyche. I want your soul to be good. I want your soul to be good. I want your pneuma to be good. I want your soul to be good. And then he uses this word, 
soma, body. I want your body to be good. And of course, we didn't, the hippies or whoever didn't invent mind, body, spirit. This goes all the way back here to the Bible. God knows that there's a spiritual component, that there's a, a soul component to us, that there's a body component to us, and they're all important. We've got to take care of it all, and God cares about it all. So let's get healthy. Let's deal with our wounds and get healthy. We can get back up on that road. In closing, one last passage. Look over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23. And let's go out of here excited about the road that we're on. Amen? So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, I'll start in 22 because it's the middle of a sentence. He says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God and to true righteousness and holiness. So this 23 is really great. He wants them to be made new in the attitudes of their mind. The attitudes of your mind? What do you think about when you think of that phrase, attitude of the mind? Attitude of the mind. Attitude of the mind. When I first read this, or when I, I remember reading this, I, I didn't get it. I'm like, is he just talking about attitude? Is this just attitude? You have a certain attitude? And I think it's more. It's attitude of the mind. I think every mind has sort of a framed, is framed by a certain attitude. I think racism is an attitude of the mind. I think entitlement, entitlement is an attitude of the mind. Some of us have been hurt, a lot of literature on sort of victimhood. I think sometimes victimhood can become, frankly, just an attitude of the mind. And the way, this, the way that, he, that he writes this, he uses this word, anoneo, anoneo which is new or renew, new or renew. Pneuma, which is spirit or breath, right? It's this word again, spirit. Anoneo, pneuma, nos or noia. So that's how it looks in the Greek. Anoneo, pneuma, nos or noia. Anoneo, fill in the blank, could be old, could be rotten, could be a lot of different things here, right? This is a description. Pneuma, spirit, mind. Spirit, mind. There's a spirit of the mind. And I want you to fill in the blank. What's the spirit of your mind? This last week, this last month, this last year, what's the spirit of your mind? At work, what's the spirit of your mind? With your family, what's the spirit of your mind? I don't, well, we should ask the teens. When they think about school, what's the spirit of the mind? It's tough, isn't it? I really worry about the kid. I, I ask kids a lot, you know, don't ask kids actually how's school. That's a terrible question for them. Because when you ask a kid, that's what everybody asks kids, how's school. And they hate that. Because they hate school. But they know they can't really say that. So they say things like, you know, it's fine, it's good. It's fine, it's good. And the parent doesn't know, or the adult doesn't know what, to, what else to say, so they just always say it over and over again. How's school? He's just trying to start a conversation. Actually, he remembers being in school, and he hated school. So he doesn't even really want to have that conversation. He doesn't really want to know what they're doing in math. He's just trying to start a conversation. But the kid's like, oh, God, school. Wow. Hate school. But can I say that? I don't know if I can say that. That'd be disrespectful. I'm more worried about the kid that, you know, really loves school. That's a little bit of a, that's a little different. That's a little different. 
Another problem. We have a spirit of mind toward a thing. What's the spirit of your mind towards your husband? What kind of spirit of mind do you have towards your spouse? What kind of spirit of mind do you have towards your child? What kind of spirit of mind do you have towards your, towards your parent? What kind of spirit of mind do we have towards our church? What kind of spirit of mind do we have towards the Bible? What kind of spirit of mind do we have towards money? What kind of spirit of mind do we have, again, towards work? All kinds of different things. And I just want to close with this thought. Paul is saying, look, God gives us the ability to renew the spirit of our mind. And when we renew the spirit of our mind, now we're on an on-ramp. And we're going to leave here in a second. We're going to sing a song. And we're going to get back on an on-ramp. And we're going to be on that highway. That highway of holiness. And we want black lives on there. Amen? And we want blue lives on there. Amen? And we want yellow lives on there. Amen? And brown lives. We want all lives on this road. And where did this road go? This is a road of peace. This is a road where the, where the lion and the lamb, they lay down together. Amen? This is, the Lord, this is the road where we beat our swords into plowshares. Amen? And this is the road that leads us to heaven. God bless you. God bless the church. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.